0: We are going to be in Acts 18.23 through 19.7 this morning. I told told Bo and Wayne in our meeting this week that I'd originally planned to go farther and I had to cut it in half. So I'm excited about this morning's passage and I'm really excited about next week's passage. Um, So I hope you're here next week as well. We're going to look at essentially one point this morning and that's weird for me if you've been here very long um you have endured as i go through acts and i'm, I'm trying to communicate i'm trying to teach you as best i can but uh, i'm going to pare it down because this this is such an important point for us i want us to get it and the same is going to be true next week a few more points in next week's but i'm going to focus mainly on one of them next week and it is uh, it's rich i'm excited about it We're going to look at the church discipling or the discipling church. This is something that's so familiar in our language, yet it's it's not very common in our practice, unfortunately, as far as what the church and how the church actually disciples people. And we're going to look at several encounters this morning that are essentially this one theme. And, and pull some beautiful truths out of it. want to. The way I want to do this with you, though, is I want to read through our passage and then summarize the content and then make our points with you so that we can really try to soak it in and spend some time doing that. So if you would read with me, this is when Paul is, is uh, he's left Corinth. He went through Ephesus very briefly. If you remember last week, he stayed maybe a week in Ephesus, preached in a synagogue, And the Jews at that time wanted him to stay, except he didn't. He had to get back to Jerusalem, if you remember, because he was under that vow that he had made. And so he left Ephesus, he left Priscilla and Aquila there to minister at Ephesus, and he returned back to Jerusalem and then to the church at Antioch. And that's where we're going to pick it up in verse 23 of 18. So Luke writes this After spending some time there, he, that's Paul, departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke. And taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Let me give you some quick background on Ephesus. Ephesus is an important city, not only historically, but biblically. Historically, there was at its height about 200,000 residents in this city. It was the largest commercial center in all of Asia Minor, west of the Taurus Mountains, and it was notorious for its idolatry. If you've ever done your history, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was at Ephesus, the temple of of Artemis or Diana, if you're speaking in Roman. The Ephesians themselves had prided themselves on being the gatekeepers of that temple. Now, this wasn't the only temple. There were many other temples and religious places of worship in Ephesus. It was a very religious area full of idolatry, but the temple of Artemis was world-renowned for its beauty. It was four times larger For instance, then the Parthenon in Athens, from which Paul had just come. It was made completely of marble. No other building in in ancient Greece was made of such beautiful stone, and it was the largest building in the entire Greek world. As far as its biblical importance, there's two letters written to the church at Ephesus. One was by Paul, and the other was by the Lord himself in Revelation chapter 2. The content of Paul's letter is set apart, when you read it, from almost every other letter he wrote in the New Testament. It flies very, very high theologically. In fact, chapter 1 of Ephesians, is, it's beautiful, but it's this incredible exposition of God's plan from eternity past. And it's one sentence in the Greek. And so they were very deep theologically The other churches, Paul seemed to fly a little bit closer to the ground. But you get the sense from Paul's letter that this church went very, very deep, and yet to them was given the first warning by the Lord. If you remember, the Lord's warning to them was that they had left their first love. So it didn't matter how deep theologically they were. It didn't matter how much of that theology they could soak up. Absent a a love of Christ didn't mean much. So let's begin our point. There's four encounters, essentially, that we're going to look at. And I'm going to summarize them and then pull these points out for us, okay? The first is in 1823 when Paul departs from the church at Antioch and he goes through the region of Galatia and Phrygia. And what's he doing? He's strengthening the disciples. It's a very quick sentence for us to read, but it's very, very pregnant with stuff to consider. If you remember, this is the region that Paul wanted to visit on his second missionary journey. He tried to get in here, and in chapter 16, the Holy Spirit forbid him to do that because at that time, he was directing him to go to Macedonia, Europe. So Paul couldn't go strengthen the disciples the first time. Now he does. He's allowed to, and he makes the most of it. All these churches he founded needed upbuilding in the faith. They needed grounding. They needed leadership. They needed the Lord. And he spent time strengthening them. It was his desire to do so, and he finally got to... There's also a pragmatic reason, I think. It was the quickest and most direct route to Ephesus. Remember, look up in verse 19 of chapter 18 it says they came to Ephesus he left them that's Priscilla and Aquila there at Ephesus but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews when they asked him to stay for a longer period he declined but on taking leave this is what he told them I will return to you if God wills and he set sail from Ephesus the first time he tried to get to this region God didn't will it so he went around made made his way to Troas he wanted to return to Ephesus, and he had learned at that point to discern the Lord's will. So it happens that the Lord did open this door for him to go into the Galatian region, and so he went and strengthened the churches, made his way back to Ephesus. So Paul, in the first encounter we're going to see, strengthens the churches. But next we're introduced to the character of Apollos in verse 24. It says, now a Jew, this is while Paul is going through that Galatian and Phrygia region, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. Now, if you are familiar again with any world history, you know that Alexandria, in northern Egypt, was a very, very influential, famous city. It was. Uh, it had the ancient Alexandrian Library with over seven hundred thousand volumes, the largest library in the world. Very schooled, very eloquent, rhetorically. But there's also one-fourth of the population, which could have been pushing close to a million or 700,000 people at that time. One-fourth of that population was Jewish. Very large Jewish influence in Alexandria. Well, Apollos was from there. He comes to Ephesus, and we're told some things about him, that he was an eloquent man, and he was competent in the Scriptures. He'd also been instructed In the way of the Lord. So, not only was he competent in the Old Testament scriptures, the Pharisees would have been competent in the Old Testament scriptures. But he'd been instructed specifically in the way of the Lord. We're also told that he was fervent in spirit. That word fervent literally means boiling in spirit. So, that tells you he had a zeal for the Lord. Not just a knowledge, he had a zeal for Christ. So he comes to Ephesus and he spoke and taught accurately, accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. So as we're told, and we, in our studies of scripture, we see John was sent before Christ to prepare the way. He preached a baptism of repentance, clear the way of the Lord, he's coming. And John himself would constantly appeal, there's one coming who's greater than I. And see, he always pointed the people to this one coming, the one coming. He prepared the way of the Lord, and his was a baptism of repentance, clearing the way. And so, Apollos knew that baptism. He'd accepted that baptism of John, and yet that's as far as his knowledge went. He didn't know of the completion of the Messiah, what he'd done. And he needed instruction. Nonetheless, verse 26 says, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. This introduces us to our third group, Priscilla and Aquila. It says they took him aside. Literally, this means they didn't correct him publicly. They pulled him aside in private. This is going to become important. We're going to consider this in a minute. But they pulled him aside privately and further instructed him. They discerned something lacking. And they were able. They, that is, both husband and wife, were explaining the scriptures to him. Consequently, he powerfully refuted the Jews when he went on to Achaia. We we looked at that. Achaia is the region that Paul had come out of. It included Athens. It included Corinth. And Apollos wanted to make his way to that region. Probably, my guess, uh, is because of his rhetorical training in Alexandria. He was eloquent. That's rhetoric. Athens, of course, was one time the seat of, of rhetoric, founded by Plato and Aristotle and those great rhetoricians. So my, my assumption is he wanted to get to that school because he was fervent. He was boiling over in his spirit to go take those guys on for the Lord. It's somewhat intimidating for a lay person to, to make contact with some of those giant intellectual people. Not so for Apollos. He was very fervent. We don't know if he ever went to Athens. We do know he went to Corinth, and he was so popular at Corinth, it actually caused divisions. Some said, I'm of Apollos. Some said, I'm of Paul. Some said, I'm of Cephas. Some said, I'm of Jesus. So we do know that he made his way there at some point. I also wanted to make this point. I'd never seen this before. It's a consideration of mine. I haven't settled on it. But I wonder if it was not Priscilla and Aquila with the help of Apollos who actually founded the church at Ephesus. If you remember, Paul didn't stay very long. He stayed a week and had to keep going. He left Priscilla and Aquila there, and he's gone for several months, I don't know how long, exactly. but when Paul gets back, there's already a church established. In fact, Paul references the church in 1 Corinthians 15 in a Priscilla and Aquila's household. There's already disciples made at Ephesus when he gets back. And so it caused me to wonder, Was it Priscilla and Aquila, with the help of Apollos, who founded the church at Ephesus? If so, that kind of changes our view of lay workmen, does it not? I love that point. They did, at the very least, much of the groundwork in Ephesus before Paul's return, which to me is one of the healthiest indications of a church and discipleship, that the Apostle Paul could leave Priscilla and Aquila there, move on, and when he comes back, the work has expanded. Disciples have been made. And not only that, a man of Apollos' stature has been even further grounded by this, this couple. What a sign of a healthy church. It flourished despite Paul's absence. By the way, that's every pastor's desire. It should be. It's terrifying to think that if a pastor were to leave a church, that the church would fold its doors because it shows that the church's faith always rested on the pastor's ability and not the Lord himself. It shouldn't be like that, but often it is like that. There's a cult of personality that develops. It happened at Corinth, and it happened to Paul himself. He refuted those people who would say, I'm a Paul. No. What am I? I'm a worker. That's it. And he pointed them to the Lord. It's every pastor's desire to see this kind of church dynamic flourishing as it did. The fourth encounter that we're going to consider and draw our points from is the one when Paul finally happens to get to to Ephesus after Apollos was at Corinth. And he finds the disciples who had not received the Holy Spirit when they believed. Now, there is some debate as to whether or not they were believers or not at this point. And while I'm not going to get into that debate, essentially it doesn't matter at this point because they were nonetheless believers at the end of the encounter. Right? They did receive the Spirit, evidenced by them speaking in tongues and prophesying, the same evidence that was given on Pentecost and each additional stage of the Lord expanding his reach in the world. It's the last time that we see that outpouring in this way. But nonetheless, when Paul got there, he sees that there was something again deficient in these disciples, these twelve people he ran into, leading him to ask the question Did you receive the Spirit? No. We don't even know if there is a Holy Spirit. Into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. We're not told this, but I think the way Luke writes it is, I think these disciples had been influenced under Apollos' previous ministry. It's the same issue that Apollos had when he went to Ephesus. Some say that these were disciples of John the Baptist and had come here. Could be. I think the way Luke ties these together, they were disciples of Apollos, knowing only the baptism of John. In either case... Paul completes what was lacking in their faith. He says, you need to believe in the name of Jesus. They do, and were baptized in his name, completing the work of faith, the expression and outworking of that faith, evidenced by the Holy Spirit coming upon them. So these four encounters identify for me the one point I want to focus on for us, because it's right where we're at, church. It's right where we're at. And next week, even more so. I'm so excited. Spiritually healthy indicators of a church. There's four. There's more, but I chose to focus on these four. Involvement in spiritual formation of others, mature believers able to do the work, a true concern for the spiritual health of of others as opposed to personal aggrandizements or self-glorifying and last, humility, and teachability. The reality is, church, is that all of us are involved somehow in spiritual formation. All of us are being formed to something. There's not a day that goes by, there's not a minute that goes by that you're not being discipled somehow, some way, formed into the image of something. In our case here, we see Paul strengthening the churches. We see Priscilla and Aquila instructing Apollos. We see Apollos strengthening the church at Corinth. And we see Paul completing what lacked in the 12 disciples. There's spiritual formation of the kind we're after, but the reality is there's always spiritual formation of one kind, good or bad, going on in your life. Everyone is a worshiper of something. Everyone is being formed and discipled in something the real question then is what or who are we worshipping and to what are we being formed and discipled in. As a statistic to support this, consider this. Does anybody know what movie franchise has grossed more than all the previous movies in the last 10 years? Take a guess. What is it? Not well Disney owns it Marvel Comics. Marvel Comics And it all has to do with what? Superhero and hero worship. They've made nearly $15 billion. Is that not an interesting parallel? We are worshiping something. We long for worship. The early church father, Origen, said it this way, what each one honors before all else what before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. Favorite old pastor of mine, Thomas Guthrie, said it even more plainly. The soul craves to worship as the body craves for food. So we got to make sure we understand this. If you are not being discipled in Christ, you are still being discipled in Something. What are you giving your time, your affection, your money to? That will answer the question of what you're being discipled in. The Lord, of course, came to make us His disciples. And the one point that's consistent in our passage, that's what they were about. Paul strengthening the churches. Priscilla and Aquila strengthening Apollos. Apollos strengthening Corinth. Paul strengthening the twelve. It's all discipleship. It's all involvement. It's all training up people, the church of God. How beautiful is that? They understood the commandment that the Lord left the church. Go therefore and what? Make disciples. It's a command. And they took that command very seriously. This is what we, as the redeemed of God, are now to give our life and effort to. Making disciples who reflect Jesus Christ in this world. And they were all about it. Paul left his former life of Judaism to do this. Apollos, who could have made a lot of money as a rhetorician in Alexandria, nonetheless becomes a missionary. Priscilla and Aquila could have had a career as tent makers, and what are they doing? They're planting churches. They were true disciples. They were involved in the spiritual formation of others. They recognized the command of the Lord. And church, I will say this, the need is great at waypoint for this. And this is a point of challenge for you. It's still true today what Jesus said in John 4, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. It begins with a willingness and a real intentional effort of involvement not just in activity but in people. In people. Priscilla and Aquila weren't just pouring into activities they poured into the man. Paul didn't pour into simply the churches he strengthened the disciples both in Galatia And at Ephesus. And Apollos did the same when he got to Corinth. All of them were involved. For us, we have to know that it is not an option to be a part of discipleship. I'll say this as clearly as I can. Church, you don't have the choice to be involved or not be involved in people's lives. It's not an option, it's a command. The Lord says make disciples. What does that mean? Get involved in people. The problem we're facing at Waypoint and the church at large, we don't know where to start. Our lives are too busy for this. Maybe with things that are not bad in and of themselves, but we fill our lives up with so much stuff we don't have time to get involved in people's lives. Or maybe we're we're not people persons. Well, we've got to start being people persons. <laughs> not an excuse. There are people at Waypoint struggling with sin. There are couples struggling in marriages. There's young believers asking questions and answers and there's not enough of us to minister to them. The need is great at Waypoint and beyond. What the church needs, more than anything, is people who mirror what we just read. And Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila and Paul, they're willing to serve the Lord. They're willing to serve the Lord. Now, I'm not advocating you go quit your job, but what I am advocating is that you seek service to the Lord in your job. That you recognize that's your mode of discipleship right there. That there's people you come in contact with at work who need to hear about the Lord Jesus and then be discipled, grounded in the faith. There's that need. Maybe it does mean that some of you are being called out of your job to be missionaries. There's a great history of that happening. Whatever the case, you are a disciple first and foremost. This is from the book Transformational Discipleship, which, by the way... I'll, re- I'll uh, remind you, after I'm done with the book of Acts, this is where we're going. We're looking at discipleship, and I'm going to camp out here as a theme for however long I have to. I've already begun outlining the lessons. This is one of the books I'm going to introduce you to. There's several more. This is what the author said. As our churches grow, we become increasingly proficient in a myriad of other things, from branding to facility management. But are we making disciples? Have we become proficient in many things while simultaneously becoming deficient in the one thing that matters most? I can answer that for us. Yes, we have. I asked a lot of people in our church, when you came to faith, how did you start growing in the faith? How did you start learning? You know what the common answer was? And this is my answer. This is me, too. The way I learned was not by somebody grabbing me and saying, Seth, let me help you. is by going to church and figuring it out on my own. And my growth, instead of skyrocketing like we see in the New Testament, was more kind of like that slow bell curve. Anybody else identify with that? That identifies the problem for us. What's the problem? We're not pouring into each other. We don't have people, one, who are ready to pour into others because they themselves haven't been discipled there's still one more step removed from that. Not only have they themselves not been discipled, they're not even willing to be discipled at this point. That's where we've got to start. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, Christianity without the living Christ is inevitably Christianity without discipleship. And Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. Listen, if we want to be a church... Blessed with the presence and power and fruit of God in our body. I don't want to pray for it if we're not willing to be about this. That's testing the Lord. Christ has said, Here's what I'm about. Are you with me? Oof. No, God, but I still want your blessing. I'm not willing to give my life to this work, but I want your fruit and I want your presence. Sorry you're going on board in my agenda. Second point too, mature believers able to do the work. I just touched on this. There was a zeal for the Lord within everyone in our account. Did you pick that up? Paulus traveled all the way from Alexandria. He was zealous. The scripture literally said he was boiling in his spirit. He had a zeal for the Lord. Priscilla and Aquila, they were willing to be left at Ephesus as Paul traveled on. And they didn't sit idle, did they? Because when Paul gets back, guess what? There's a church in their home and there's disciples. There's a zeal there. Paul, you just kind of come to expect it with Paul, he couldn't stay very long at Antioch. Why? Because he had to go strengthen the disciples in those first churches he planted. And he poured himself into them and he built them up. In fact, to the church of Galatia, you know what he wrote? I am in labor for you until Christ is formed in you. That's how much zealous zeal Paul demonstrated for those churches I would gladly spend my life until you are formed in Christ I would gladly give my life for that purpose why because Christ gave his life for me for that purpose he demonstrated zeal for this work there was discernment within all in our account I love thinking about this point with Priscilla and Aquila as Apollos being eloquent being fervent being powerful in the pulpit it's a couple a lay couple just like some of you couples out there listening to Apollos and saying hmm we need to talk to him about something how many of you would have one the courage or two the discernment to pull your pastor inside and say can I, can I teach you something real quick <laughs> that's what they did It's what they did There's a discernment. Paul discerned something lacking in the disciples at Ephesus. There's also a separation in service within all in our account. We've considered that. This is the perfect model of discipleship. They saw, so they acted. Paul saw the need in Galatia, so he went. Priscilla and Aquila saw the need for Apollos to be instructed further in the way, so what they do? They didn't wait for an invitation of Apollos. Apollos didn't say, hey, I know I'm deficient. I don't know what in, but can someone help me? No, they discerned it, so they went to him. How many of you know that there's people in our church right now who are deficient and need help? And they'd be willing to get help. They'd be willing to be schooled and taught and built up. But no one will go. No one will reach out. Well, I'm busy. I've I've got this and that. And so young Christians just kind of flounder and die fall into sin, struggle with all kinds of things. They saw and they acted. It was quoted in my previous sermon. When Paul was in Athens, Greek historian said about Athens that it was easier to find a God in Athens than a man. You remember that quote? I'd like to modify this and apply it to us. Sometimes it's easier to find an idol in my heart than it is Christ. There's so many things and excuses I can give to stop me from doing this work. It's incredible. John Wesley said of his life, when he said, when I look at my own heart, all I see is hell. Pretty good summary. I don't like looking at me because it's so filthy, so many things. It's no wonder why Peter said, sanctify Christ as what? Lord in your heart. We have so many things in our life that keep us from truly serving him and serving him in his church. How badly we need to take up Peter's command, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Why the psalmist said, or the proverb, sorry, said to guard your hearts because from it flows the issues of life. How badly, church, we need sanctification How badly what that means, we need to be set apart for him. That's what sanctification is. It's that heart that says, I'm willing to be set apart for you, Lord. I don't care what the image I may gain at my workplace is. I don't care if people see me as a radical or whatever. I want to be separated for you. Two of the requirements, by the way, for the priesthood, there were many, but two of them, for the priesthood in the Old Testament, was separation and consecration. They had to be completely clean. They had to be consecrated to the Lord. Same is true for us, just not in the ceremonial way, like under the law. If you want to be of any use to the Lord, you've got to be separated and you've got to be consecrated to Him. You've got to be saying, Lord, I've got many idols in my heart, but take it, cleanse it. I want to sanctify you as Lord. Lord in my heart how badly we need it it's not proper in other words to say as we often do in the church that christ died that i may live it's better that christ died that i also might die that's more accurate biblically and christ was raised that i might live but do you know what christ's death is for you we're going to look at this in a minute christ's death for you is your death to self And Christ's resurrection is your life for him. That's more biblical. Paul said it this way I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2. We see this point demonstrated in Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila, and Apollos. They were all consecrated, separated, living for the Lord. It's a beautiful point to consider. There is also a true concern for the spiritual health of others as opposed to self-glorifying. Consider it. The true concern for others led Paul many times to want to go to the churches. You see that when there's a love present, church, and listen to this, please, when there's a love, a real love for people in God's church, you know what it does? it compels you to go to them. It compels you to go to them. If that's not there, we're quenching the work of the Spirit in our heart. There's a true concern for the spiritual health of others. Priscilla and Aquila with Apollos, Apollos with the church at Ephesus and Corinth, Paul with the twelve disciples. In all cases, they were not seeking glory or preeminence. Every servant in our passage served out a love for Christ and a love for his bride, which is the church. Now I want you to consider this with me. Follow this. How easy would it have been for Aquila and Priscilla to get jealous when Apollo showed up and stole the show with his power and eloquence? They had been left in Ephesus. They'd been making disciples, and then this man shows up and just preaches, lights out. How easy would it have been for him to sit there, them to sit there in jealousy? Who's this guy think he is? Oh, eloquent. He's not powerful. I knew that. We do that, don't we? We get jealous. Priscilla and Aquila weren't jealous. What'd they do? They saw something lacking, so out of love for him, he said, hey, can we help you? We want to make your ministry more effective. And they did. They further instructed him, and then he says, hey, I am going to go to Corinth, and they're like, right on, bro, go. Let's, let's write you a letter of recommendation. They wanted to help his ministry. They didn't care if they got the glory for the church at Ephesus. They were thankful to have such a man who was so fervent, powerful, and eloquent in the scriptures, he could get up with all the Jews and refute them publicly. I tell you what, if someone walked into our church like that, I'd I'd take him in a heartbeat. I'd say, hey, I'll take out a second mortgage to hire you, buddy. No, I wouldn't do that, but... Charles Spurgeon said this. We have plenty of people nowadays who could not kill a mouse without publishing it in the Gospel Gazette. Now this is before Facebook and selfies. said, Samson killed a lion and said nothing about it. And yet the Holy Spirit finds modesty so rare that he took care to record it. Say much of what the Lord has done for you, but say little of what you have done for the Lord. Do not utter a self-glorifying sentence. Priscilla and Aquila were not seeking glory for themselves. Apollos, though he could have very easily, was not seeking glory for himself. I'm going to confess to you guys, and some of you know this. I've talked to you openly about this. I don't think I've talked about it from the pulpit. But I'm going to segue into next week's lesson, which is about confession. Confession. For many years, I've had a plague in my own heart. And by the Lord's grace, He's exposed it in me. He's caused the hatred to begin to swell up. He's caused me to see it and look ugly. And He continually gives me grace in this process of repenting from it. And that attitude is to look disdainfully, even mockingly, upon those who do not discern certain things maybe even caught up in false teachings, and to repudiate them. Some of you have seen that transformation begin in me. You knew me when I was like that. And I apologize. I know in my flesh I can still be like that. And it is not my desire to be. It's not. I hate it about me. It's a burden to me. And I have a fear that that sin in my life is going to ruin the church. I'm serious about that. That's how bad it is in my life. But what we see in the Scriptures, instead of mocking or disdainfulness, repudiation, you know what the wisdom from heaven, James says, does? It's meek, it's patient, it's reasonable. And it goes to people if they see deficiency and says, let me help you. Rather than standing from afar, Saying, oh, I can't believe you don't get that. I love G. Campbell Morgan's ministry. I've told you that. G. Campbell Morgan was called the Prince of Expositors. And I love him because he was not willing to stake his flag in just one theological tradition, though he had his convictions. He said, I I agree with much of the theological stances of these churches, but I repudiate the attitude with which they hold it. See, there's many pulpiteers, and I was one of them, who used the pulpit to beat people up. Now there's a time when false teaching has to be called out. That's different. But the true minister of Christ, when he sees deficiency in the church, you know what he does? He goes in the meekness of wisdom and helps. He doesn't stand from afar and simply criticize. Priscilla and Aquila could have done this. Apollos could have done this. Paul could have done this. When he wrote to the Church of Corinth, how many issues, we talked about this a few weeks ago, how many issues did he have to deal with? I've often thought how easy it would have been for Paul to throw in the towel on them and say, the Lord judge you, see ya. No. He never gave up on them. As bad as a church as that was, he never gave up on them. Why? Because he understood what true wisdom is. No. I'm going to you, and I'm going to help you. It's easier to be belligerent and dogmatic rather than going to the person in humility and instructing him with gentleness, it's easier to be belligerent than to be humble and help. It is. I've been there. I'm speaking from experience. Because when I stand from afar, guess what? I don't have to check my own heart in dealing with people. We can sit in our chairs and criticize and we don't have to deal with us. And my deficiencies of character. My deficiencies of knowledge. And so we never get engaged. We just shoot at each other. (laughs) It's time to get over that. Say, I might not agree with you, but I'm going to talk with you and I'm going to love you. Paul instructed the church in 2 Timothy. He told Timothy, teach, exhort, rebuke with great patience. Patience. There's many preachers I love today, and I I agree with them theologically, but I find myself distancing myself from them because of the heart with which they hold their theology. I'll take what they say is true, just like Jesus said, hey, do what the Pharisees said, it's not wrong, but don't be like them. i'll say this the opposite is also true i know many pastors and theologians and whatnot can use the pulpit as a bully pulpit but the also, the opposite is true from the the pew there's many people who sit in the pews and they'll criticize the pastor they'll criticize the churches for what they're not doing and yet they won't go to the church pastor or the leaders or anybody and help they'll just criticize and then they'll leave it goes both ways because it's the same heart And we've had it here at Waypoint. We've had it here at Waypoint. It grieves me. What we need is workers who care more for the spiritual health and discipleship of the one who is weaker than to showcase their own superior discernment and abilities. We need those who see themselves as small and are willing to invest in others' lives to make them successful that's what we need and we need it here humility and teachability is a good follow up I'm so impressed by the humility of Aquila and Priscilla so easy it would have been for them to sit there and criticize and be jealous but you know what I'm most impressed about is the humility and teachability of Apollos he was a he was a powerful man from the pulpit but he didn't refuse correction he took it and he was made the better for it I've thought about something, for those of you who were at the Pregnancy Resource Center a few weeks back, I've thought about something that was said there. It's been brought back to my attention over and over since then. Perhaps you remember the speaker talked about what would have happened if we did repeal the Roe versus Wade decision and abortion was made illegal. Remember what he said? He said the church would not be ready for what followed. And he's right. He said the desire of people to get an abortion would still be present, and the church is not ready or equipped to engage those people with help. We're not ready. He gave the example of prohibition, if you remember that, and how the church primarily fought victoriously to get alcohol banned, and yet in the end it failed, not because of legislation, it failed because we never dealt with the heart of the person who turns to alcohol. We can legalize or legislate all these issues. It doesn't matter. If the heart's not transformed, nothing's going to change. There's got to be humility and teachability, both in the one teaching and the one receiving. What we are after here at Waypoint, and this is a hard process, I'm going to confess. It is a hard process to change this culture, and I'm learning it. But what we want is transformation. Not simply programs, not simply busyness. We want, we want to see people transformed. We want to see people who are apathetic become boiling in spirit. We want to see people who are ignorant of Christ and His Word filled with the knowledge of Christ. Transformation, though, may require you to transform first. A person is quite useless, as I said earlier in ministry. Who's able to look at himself and not find sin needing to be confessed or spiritual disciplines needing to be refined or established in your life or work for christ needing to be done that he or she can do as mighty as apollos was his greatest strength in my opinion was not his eloquence or his knowledge it was his humble teachable spirit Before we can pour into anyone else wisdom and knowledge, we must possess humility ourselves to gain wisdom and knowledge. We cannot give what we do not possess. If we want to exercise love toward others, we must first be filled up with the love of Christ by spending a great amount of time with him and taking in his loveliness. If we want to exercise humility toward others, we must first be humbled ourselves. Here's the applications. Spiritual formation, are you still a babe in Christ? This is where we've got to begin. Let me ask you these questions. I don't want you to answer out loud yet. You might next week. Are you still characterized by the flesh? In other words, what's your life look like throughout the week when people are present or not present? Are you carnal, are you fleshly? More characterized by sin? Are you stuck on the basic truths of Christianity? Did you come to faith and never grow in your knowledge of Christ? Peter's last words in 2 Peter 3.18 was... ...grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Are you stuck still on basic truths? Even if you've been a Christian for decades, perhaps. Are you still, more than not, serving your own interests... ...as opposed to Christ's? And what I mean is... ...when you go to your place of employment... Is Christ ever a topic of your conversation? Is he ever a pursuit of your heart? Do you seek how you can be a minister of Christ where you're at? Or do you just go through your day without even thinking about that? Are your daily passions and longings for the things of God or the things of the world? I had a man tell me after church, before church last week, I was talking with him and he's right. He said, you know, so many of us know exactly where our retirement portfolios are at but we couldn't tell you some of the basic truths of Christianity from the scripture. So how do we embody what we see in this passage in Acts? I'll tell you this, I have a deep, deep burden and conviction, church, that we desperately need this right now. We desperately need what we see in this passage right now. Spiritual discipleship type interactions. But I don't know if we're ready for them. So how will it come about that we might get ready that we might witness the kind of spiritual maturity that we've seen in this passage how do we get there by the way I'm not giving up I don't see it happening yet but that's what I'm laboring for we have to do an honest evaluation of where we're at in other words can we feast on a steak dinner if we're still only ready for milk no and I'm not going to try to push that yet if we've got to have milk we've got to have milk but I'm certainly going to push it because I like steak more than milk. I want to grow. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 3.1. He said, I'll read it for you. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of flesh. They were Christians. He calls them brothers, and he goes on to, say, I'm confident of this, yet they needed to grow. Same is true for Hebrews 5. In verses 11 through 14, the writer of Hebrews says, hey church, by this time you ought to be teaching people. You ought to be at this point, but you're needing to be taught the basic truths of Christianity again. And he says the same metaphor, Paul says, you've come to need milk and not solid food, because solid food's for the mature. There's an expectation of growth. We ought to be doing this at this point in our life. It is absolutely sinful if you can say you've been a Christian for 20 years and yet you're still in an infant stage. Something is drastically wrong with you in your walk. And it's got to be addressed. It's got to be addressed. Paul said in Philippians 2, 1-8, have this mindset among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. Don't seek your own interests only, but the interests of others. That's the mindset of Christ. Spiritual formation, press on to maturity. After the writer of Hebrews says, hey, you're not ready for this, you're still an infant, you know what he said in chapter 6, verse 1, following it, he says, press on to maturity. Press on to maturity. Maturity is knowing and exercising what you know. It's not simply gaining knowledge. Anybody can gain knowledge out of this There's great systematic theologians in the universities who have not a clue how to walk with the Lord. I've been in seminary, I know. Maturity is exercising what you know, and that's what Hebrews 5 actually says who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. So, church, where are we going to start? Here's my challenge I want to be a discipling church like we saw in Acts, but we've got to start somewhere. We've got to take our walk and our maturity seriously. Do we fellowship with Christ in His Word? Do we fellowship with His people? Are we in prayer? Are we seeking to be of use to Him? Those are the basics of Christianity. And we've got to evaluate, am am I failing in any one of those? Because if I'm not fellowshipping with Christ in His Word, I'm certainly not going to be of any use to Him. If I'm not fellowshipping through prayer, if I'm not fellowshipping with the church Christ is in his church and the way he manifests himself to us is through his church do we minister to one another we've got to press on to maturity we've got to put to death the flesh and walk in the new life of Christ I want to say these principles here and we'll end the next slide Maturity or sanctification in Christ is twofold. And follow me on this. Maturity in Christ is twofold. It makes true in us what is already true for us. It makes true in us what is already true for us. It rests upon the historical facts of Christ's death and his resurrection, which is justification. But Christ matures us by making Christ's death and his resurrection real in us. Now, I've put this in bold letters for me. These truths are not simply to be believed. They are to be experienced and made real in every single one of us. His death and his resurrection must be believed. That's the beginning of salvation. But then it's pressed on to be made real in you. You're conformed to the image of his death and you're conformed to his life. Let me break it down this way. Historical fact, Christ died for our sins, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. The doctrinal inference from that, Paul said it, we conclude that one has died for all, therefore all died. That's the doctrinal inference. What's the application? Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. You see how that breaks up? We can summarize it. Make your death in Christ real In your life. It's a fact that Christ died for us. The doctrine is we conclude He died for all so that we all would die to ourselves. Now let's make it real in us. That's the application. What are we doing? To make that part of who we are. The other side is true as well. The historical fact Christ was raised on the third day. The doctrinal inference, we have become united with Him in the likeness of His resurrection. The application, since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, Colossians. Do you seek the things that are above? Are you still seeking the worldly things? If you're still seeking the worldly things, you're not putting to death the flesh and those earthly things. You're still a babe. We've got to press on to maturity. What we see with Paul, Apollos, Aquila, and Priscilla in our passage are people who are spiritually mature. And because of that... They could do incredible work for the Lord. They put on Christ and they put off the flesh. They've made their pursuit Jesus and stopped pursuing the world. They are on the mature end of what we've described and we might not be there yet, but it doesn't mean we can't be there. Because you know what I also read in the scriptures? God is no respecter of persons. He says in Isaiah, who will go for me? Anyone who says, Lord, I'm willing, he will say, my power is gonna be in you. I don't care if you're great in the eyes of men. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. If you have a desire to be this, guess what? God will use you, church. If you say, God, I'm not content with where I'm at spiritually and I want to be used, God will say, good. My power will be perfected in your weakness. I don't care who you are. So to help us grow, consider these three things and then we'll finish. Renew your mind by God's word begin with the discipline of studying the Word. It is living, it is active, it is how God communicates to us, it's how He forms us and transforms us. If you are not in the Word, you cannot be walking with Him. It's that simple. You cannot walk, have a walk with Christ if you are not in His Word. Now that might challenge some of you to say, do I even know Him? I don't know. But you cannot be in fellowship with Him apart from the habit of Feeding on him in his word it is impossible it's impossible now i don't say that simply to beat you up i say that because i want you to have the rich fellowship with christ and i'm trying to say this is where we start we've got to start here we have a daily need for our spiritual food even as the body has daily need for its physical food in fact job would say it this way i value your word more necessary than my daily food That's what Job said, and that's why Job was such a man of God. When we neglect God through searching for him in his word, we are spiritually malnourished at best. We are spiritually malnourished at best. Secondly, seek to fellowship with his saints. And what I mean by this is don't just hang out with people. Seek spiritual fellowship with his saints seek spiritual fellowship with the saints. Talk about your common faith. Build each other up. Pray together. Learn to direct your speech toward the things of God. Learn to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and to weep with those who are weeping. But that requires fellowship. If we're not going to make time in our lives and our week to do this, we're not going to grow. Christ is in his church to minister to you. Once again, by nature and by design, the Christian life is impossible to live in isolation from his body. Something that will be very explicit in next week's passage. To illustrate that, how socially mature do you think a child would be who is kept from all fellowship during his formative years and then at the age of 12 introduced to people for the first time? It's a silly illustration, but that's somewhat what it's like when all we do is come Sunday morning and barely interact with each other. I mean, honestly, we don't really interact. We, we talk to each other and then we sit down and we leave. If that's all we're getting in spiritual interaction, we're going to be socially immature in the Christian sense. The reality is, if we want to see change, we devote ourselves to the people who God died for. Just like Priscilla and Aquila, just like Apollos, just like Paul, they're pouring into the people of the church. I love it. I long for this. I'm laboring for this church My prayer for us has been focused on this for the last two weeks. As I've been praying for you, as I've been praying for me, as I intercede for you. And by the way, Bowden mentioned this. What we've started doing as a leadership is picking one family week and we're just interceding for you. So if you get a card, it's not because we see like you're in trouble. We just chose you to pray for this week. We want to do this. We see the need for this. We want to build you up. So that's what that's about. I don't want you to freak out. It saddens me how great the work of spiritual formation is before us and how few I think are ready for it, to engage in it. But it doesn't push me to despair. The needs are numerous in our body. We have people struggling with sin, struggling with the Lord, struggling in relationships, and I'm wanting to see an army raised up to build each other up, ready for that work, I'm laboring with hope I'm laboring for change and transformation if 12 was enough for the Lord then our group is more than enough to do the work but it takes willingness to enter that process we're going to start we're going to change I was talking with my friend Jeremy back there just yesterday about this I'm not content with church I'm not content to be just a church that comes together and does church. I'm not. I don't want that. I want to be used and spent for your sake. And I want you to join me in it. It's going to take transformation. Next week, we're going to see how that transformation starts. It's powerful. So I hope you're here. I'll invite the worship team back up. And uh, Anna, you might be singing alone. Jill's in the... Oh, never mind. I'm going to ask you just take a few minutes to go before the Lord and and ask Him to search you and try you. And begin to reveal in you things that need to be confessed, things that need to change in your life. It could be that you're not leading as a husband. It could be that you're not leading as a father. If you're not a husband or a father, it could be that you're not serving the Lord. It could be any number of things. But go before the Lord and just take this time. This is your time to meet with Him. That's why we're here. We're not just trying to rush through and get through a program. I want you to do business with Him before we sing this last song. So take a minute. Father, I thank you for impressing these truths upon me. And God, I pray you teach us the very precious truth as your children, that you discipline those whom you love. Father, if our souls are being scourged right now, it's because you are trying to draw us into a deeper walk, not chase us away that there's a malady in our soul that needs correction and you alone as the great physician know how to deal with it and you're calling us to come to you. Father, may we learn that precious, precious truth drawing near to you through faith in Christ of having our living Savior interceding for us in the very throne room of God to give us grace and mercy help in time of need Father we are very weak sinners and as Jonathan Edwards said we need Christ more after we come to faith because our flesh is strong our sin is now visible and exposed it can overwhelm the soul like a raging sea and cast us into despair and how foolish for the man who's drowning to try and save himself by grabbing his left arm with his right and pulling himself out. He can't do it. But we read in the Scripture when Peter was overcome and he took his eyes off you, he cried out, Lord, save, and you saved by your own strong hand. And that testimony needs to be our testimony, Lord. Many of us have never experienced the first act of salvation Many of us have never experienced as Christians the continued acts of deliverance that you give. From the power of indwelling sin, from the prejudices of our minds and hearts, and we want that, Lord. Our community, our families, we need it. But it begins with humility, with teachability, And you move our hearts, you move through your Spirit on our hearts to make us willing. You gave us grace to take those steps. That's what we ask for, Lord. So Lord, as we sing this last song, we, we wanna honor you in our hearts and minds and sing out, Father, from our souls. Father, work on us throughout this coming week. Challenge us in our spiritual walk to not be content where we are right now. To say, I'm not who I should be, but I'm not staying where I am. Be, Be glorified, Lord, as a wonderful, merciful Savior. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.